0: Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that there is a firm foundation laid for us, your saints, in your most excellent word. Father, there are numerous things that seek in our day and age to supplant the primacy, the sufficiency, the necessity of your word. Lord, it can be tempting in a world that is running headlong into the things that are the opposite of your word to want to go along, to want to fit in. But Father, help us by your grace To not be like the foolish man who builds our houses on sand. Father, this life brings storms and trials and difficulties. And if our lives are not founded on the eternal word of God, we will be washed away. Father, help us today to found our words on the rock. Jesus Christ, whom your word speaks of on every page. So, Father, work in our midst by your spirit. Change us, mold us, shape us more into the image of your beloved son. We pray all these things in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter, or I'm sorry, 2 Peter you were, uh, Some of you were paying attention. Yes, Second Peter chapter 1. And we are going to finish the first chapter of Second Peter. As we consider, again, power for pilgrims in the knowledge of Christ. And we are looking particularly at the pilgrim's lamp. So look with me. We'll begin our reading in verse 12. And we'll read through the end of the chapter, but we're going to be focusing primarily on verses 20 and 21 this morning. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. "...since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty." For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You know, there's a term that's often thrown out there. In fact, I was uh, in a conversation this week where someone threw out this interpretation of sharing the gospel with someone, and and the, the term that was thrown out there, well, well, that's just your interpretation. We hear that a lot in our day and age. And and it's used as sort of a defeater when we would seek to share Christ with other people, when we would point them to the word of God. It's sort of used and said, well, you can't really know what that means because God's word is just, you're just sort of interpreting it your own way. I'll interpret it my own way. Now, that lie has been bought into by many people in the world today. I find it interesting that no other Um, literature no other writings are treated in that same way in many respects you know people people can pretty much get along that this is what um, Mark Twain meant when he wrote Huckleberry Finn or Tom Sawyer all those different classics this is what Shakespeare meant when he wrote Hamlet and yes there are nuances and different things here but overall we know that you understand sort of what is written. But when we come to the word of God, in particular, we have to recognize what Peter is calling us to recognize here. And that is that we are fully and completely dependent on the spirit of God to understand the word. That we cannot properly understand God's word apart from his spirit. Now, we looked at last or two weeks ago the significance of the pilgrim's lamp. And we saw that this is a sure and sufficient word, that the, the word of prophecy, which is referring to both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is something that we can be confident of, the truthfulness of, and we can be confident that it is enough. We don't need to seek. Some sort of ecstatic experience, and Peter gives us probably the greatest ecstatic experience. He saw Jesus unrobed from his flesh and all his glory shining on the mountain. And Peter says that we, which would include himself, has something more sure than seeing Christ blazing forward in glory. And that is the prophetic word. This word is an authoritative word. He tells us that it is something to which we will do well to pay attention. The idea there of paying attention is to keep careful watch over. It's the idea of a soldier who's a lookout or a sentinel looking out to see what's going to happen. And so as God's people, we must take special care to look to the word of God. And then it is an encouraging word. And we remember Peter is writing to pilgrims. He's writing to people who don't belong in this world. And so as we travel through this world, there are going to be griefs and difficulties, trials, frustrations. There are going to be things that are going to grate against us. And Peter is reminding us, look, there is a day coming when Christ returns. And so as we look forward to that day, we get a glimpse of, Of that glory when we come to the word. That as the day will dawn and the morning star will rise when Christ returns. There is also a reality that as we look to his word and we see who Christ is. The morning star rises in our own hearts. And we are encouraged by this. Which brings us now to the last two verses of chapter 1. Where we see a spirit dependent word. If God's word is sure and sufficient, authoritative, and encouraging, then as Peter calls us, we need to pay attention to it. How do we do this? What is our first priority when we come to the word of God? What should be our first focus? And notice what he tells us. Knowing this, what? First of all, he points us to the primary priority we must have When we come to God's word. And that is a dependence on the Holy Spirit. Now, as we see this spirit dependent word, there are a couple things I want us to consider. And the first is that we must reject man centered approaches to the word. We must reject man centered approaches to the word. Now again, Peter is reasoning to us that the scriptures are given to us to glimpse the glory of Christ and to encourage our hearts. That this morning star rising in our hearts is is a taste of what that day will actually be like. Now, when we come to chapter 2, and we're going to come there next week, Peter is going to begin his attack on the false teacher's. And one of the things that these false teachers are proclaiming or saying is that Christ is not coming back. They're denying the return of Christ. Now, it's amazing here because we're, Peter's writing maybe 30, 40 years after Christ had died on the cross and then ascended into heaven. And, I mean, Peter was there when the angel said... Christ, who ascended in this manner, will come again in the same manner for you. But yet, over a couple decades, three or four decades now, the church itself is beginning to doubt that truthfulness. This is actually a problem that was evident early on. We look at the letters that Paul writes to Thessalonica, and and there are concerns there. People are teaching that Christ has already returned, that somehow people missed his return. And so Peter comes and says, look, I need to prepare you. I need to warn you. I need you to recognize how you must approach the word of God. And he is approaching it by saying it is not based from someone's own interpretation. This is what the false teachers do. It's interesting, in chapter 2, he speaks of, in the Old Testament, there were false prophets. And a false prophet was someone who would come and bring a word from the Lord, claiming to have a word from the Lord, but they were false because God never told them to say that. Now, do we have that today? Oh, yeah. There are lots of people who will stand behind pulpits and get in, in arenas and get in stadiums, and they will say, this is what God has said But God did not say it. How do we evaluate that? The answer is we look and compare it against the word of God. But there are those that will also come and take the word of God and twist it. And distort it. And these are the false teachers he tells us about in chapter 2, verse 1. The church... And in particular, the people of God throughout all times, Old Testament, New Testament, have always dealt with false teaching. False teaching is subtle. And because it's subtle, it's dangerous. False teaching comes at us and, and it will say, well, this is what God's word actually means. And it seems like, oh, that makes sense. They're using the word of God. They're quoting the word of God but they're distorting it. It's interesting how this was a problem from the get-go with the Jews, and particularly within Judaism in the first century. The first century Jews had access to the Old Testament, and they had access to it both in Hebrew, and there were thousands of Hebrew manuscripts in that day, preserved by the Masoretes, but also in Greek, and at that time there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. And the Septuagint was was all over the ancient world, and particularly it made it for educated Jewish people, it made it available to them to read God's Word. It was available to them, and as a result of this, what happened is people would twist and distort the Word of God. And this twisting and distorting It didn't come from the Greeks. It didn't come from the Romans. Guess who twisted and distorted the word of God? The leaders of the Jews. There was a recognition particularly, and this continues to this day, that that God has written the Torah, the writings, and the prophets. That is scripture. In fact, I have in my study a a three-volume set of a newer translation done by a guy named Robert Alter. He's a Hebrew scholar, and he has broken it up into those three sections. You have the Torah, which are the five books of Moses, the writings, which includes a lot of the history, uh, the the poetic books, and then the prophets, both the major and the minor prophets. And so that was sort of this threefold division that the Jews recognized. But there was one other thing that they held Almost to the same degree of authority as the word of God. And this was known as the Mishnah. And the Mishnah had is its contents a running commentary on scripture. They were traditional viewpoints that the Jews had had about God's word. This was the tradition of... Of the Jews' understanding of the writings. And this the, a bunch of the Mishnah over all these different books came to make up what was known as the Talmud. Now it's interesting, this was the, the environment into which Jesus Christ was born. This was how the Jewish religion worked. You had the Pharisees and the scribes, you had the Sadducees, you had the Sanhedrin. And they were the teachers. They were the shepherds of God's people. They were the ones speaking God's word. But yet when they would speak of God's word, they would not go to the word. They would go to the Mishnah to explain God's word. And Jesus comes and he speaks very clearly to them about how they had been distorting God's word. Mark chapter 7 verses 6 through 7 He said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. And what is it that causes them to have empty, useless worship? They teach as doctrines the commandments of who? Of men. Thus, they make void the word of God by their what? Tradition. That you have handed down. And many such things you do. He speaks of the weakness of of human interpretation to expose the depth of humanity. Notice what he says in Matthew chapter 5, 19 through 20. If anyone relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, he will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What's interesting is this comes as Jesus is going to intensify the law. He's going to speak about, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. And then Jesus comes and says, but I say unto you, you shall not what? Hate. You have heard it said, you'll not commit adultery. I say unto you, you won't lust at a woman. And if you've lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery with her already. And and what had happened is the Pharisees would give people out into how they could... Technically, keep the law, but in their hearts continue to disobey what God had said. They taught and twisted the word of God to suit their own passions. And this came to a point where Jesus comes to the Pharisees and the scribes. And in Matthew chapter 23, he pronounces a woe to them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, and then this is what they do with their false interpretations. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. This is how serious false teaching is. It is as though one would come and hearing the call to come to Christ and hearing the the demands upon their life to repent and trust in Christ. And there is the door to the kingdom and we enter by the door which is Christ and yet the Pharisees would come in and they would slam the door shut in our faces so that we would not be able to enter. And why? Because they teach their traditions. He actually speaks of how they neither enter for themselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Listen, what this tells us about false teachers, what this tells us about false teaching is people are motivated. False teachers are motivated. They will sacrifice a lot. They'll go to the ends of the earth to spread their false teaching. And as they do it, they're only making people more child, children of hell. They're not bringing the message of the gospel. And so this problem of interpretation coming from someone's own interpretation, coming to the word of God and being dependent upon a particular teacher was a problem for Jesus. And it was a problem that continued in Peter's day. As we're going to see again, we'll talk more specifically about what these false teachers were doing next week. The main issue that they came to, the main problem that false teaching always has is it casts off dependence on the spirit and depends on man's own views. That's ultimately what it comes down to. Now, as we've already mentioned, things aren't much better today, are they? In fact, they're probably worse in some regard. This has actually continued to be a problem throughout church history. So when Jesus came, it was a problem. Peter is writing decades later, it's still a problem. It's still a problem today. The Roman church will lift the tradition of its interpretation to the same level or really even higher than what the bible actually says they do this by pointing to the magisterium as the only correct interpretation of god's word this is the tradition of men liberalism in the early 20th century brought about rationalism as a way to approach god's word science and rational thought is the only way to properly interpret God's word. So we have to adjust certain things that were said. We have to demythologize the word of God. And, and all these miraculous things, they were just sort of thrown in there to sort of trick people into becoming Christians. Postmodernism, subjectivism tells us that there's no actually right or wrong interpretation. It's just up to your circumstances. And so your circumstances are going to determine what type of interpretation you come to God's word. This gave rise to what we know as liberation theology, that God's word is just given to cause oppressed people to rise up against their oppressors. What about today? I'd say today we're dealing with radical individualism. You think the Bible means X? I think the Bible means Y? No big deal. Let's just go about our lives however we want to. And in all of these things, whether it be the magisterium of Rome, the rationalism of liberalism, the subjectivism of postmodernism, or today's radical individualism, the main problem is it looks for us to understand God's word by looking first, To ourselves. And Peter warns us. That proper interpretation. The interpretation that is correct. Does not come through human effort. Knowing this first of all. Almost as though he is anticipating. That there is going to be a continued drive. For humanity to look at God's word. And interpret it through our own efforts. Through our own strength. Listen, you cannot be clever enough to come to the right interpretation of God's, script, of God's Word. It is not based upon your cleverness or your abilities. Listen, how many of you would love to be warmed by the light of Christ rising in your hearts? If you try to find that in dependence on yourself, the sun will rise as a dark sun that will have no light and no warmth and will only provide you more of that which this world provides, which cannot satisfy. So we have to recognize we must begin with this assumption that we look to the wisdom of God, not Men, As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.13, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom. Not taught by human wisdom. But rather, it's taught by who? It's taught by who? Spirit. Let's do that one more time. It's taught by who? The Spirit. The, Spirit. the one who interprets these spiritual truths to those Who are spiritual. So we have to reject man-centered approaches to the word of God. It is not coming from someone's own interpretation. And then, if we're rejecting dependence upon ourselves, then what we must do is depend on the Holy Spirit to understand the word. Now, lest we take... The wrong approach here with what Peter is saying, and feel like, well, I guess then I can't really understand God's word. I, I think that sometimes we're afraid of certain aspects of God's word. We, you know, how many of you are, are jumping up and down to read uh, all the genealogies in Leviticus, right, or all the all the laws there, right? It, it's not, it's not something, and we come to those things and we scratch our heads. Like, why, why does God want me to know that the Jews weren't supposed to boil a goat's child in its mother's milk? Like, why, why do I need to know that? Why do I need to know that, that, that the fabric couldn't be mixed? There are other things that we come to. I mean, you read the beginning of Ezekiel and you're like, what is going on here? I don't know, last time you read that, but like, whoa! Was, was Ezekiel okay when he wrote this? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> Read the book of Revelation, and there's just such epic scenes of wrath and judgment. There's symbolism there. And, and so I think we, we come to those things, and we think, man, I can't understand the word of God. Well, here's the thing. If we're not to trust on ourselves then you're right. if you're trusting in yourself, you're right. You can't understand the Word of God. But God is gracious, and you know what He's done? He's given us His Spirit who resides within, who indwells us. So that now when we come to God's Word, it's not about us being able to interpret or understand God's Word. It's about the Spirit revealing Christ to us in His Word. See, don't think that it's up to you to understand God's Word. I, I think that if we take that approach, that will keep us from God's Word. Because we will be foiled in understanding what God's Word is. But rather begin, as you come to God's Word, with humbly bowing your hearts, bowing yourself in prayer and saying, I need the Spirit, and then read. And it is remarkable what God's Word will do. So we have to depend on the Holy Spirit to understand the word. Now one of the first things that we see here. That Peter is particularly pointing to. Is there is this work of the spirit known as illumination. Right? And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few moments. But illumination is essentially the idea that that which is darkened in our understanding. The word of God. The spirit takes and opens it up so that we could see light. Light. In particular, as we'll see in a few moments, that light is the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. That illumination comes in two particular ways. And the first thing that Peter is particularly focusing on for his readers is what we call apostolic illumination. He talks about that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Now, what was happening in that day and age is... The Bible was not finished. It wasn't, the, the writings of Scripture were not completed. It's not, you know, we, we, are, we are living in a, in, a, in a day and an age that we should be so thankful to the Lord for that we have multiple good translations in English, that the Bible is given to us clearly as what it is, that God continues to speak through it. Praise God for the provision of the manna from heaven in His Word. We're, we have an embarrassment of riches. When it comes to God's word. It was not always like this. And particularly in the first century. The Bible of the believers in the first century. You know they didn't get up on Sundays and say. Take your Bible and turn to page whatever. They didn't have pages. Rather they used the Old Testament. That was their Bible. And it was necessary in that day and age. For the prophecies that had been fulfilled of the Messiah. To be explained To God's people. To the world. I think of the the resurrection appearance of Jesus. To the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it's amazing there. Jesus does not tell them to open up to Romans. Because Romans hadn't been written yet. Tells us that beginning with Moses. And all the prophets. He interpreted to then the things concerning himself. And that same responsibility was given to the apostles who were given the Holy Spirit in a special measure so that they could explain Christ from the Old Testament. See, the main thing that differentiated Peter and Paul and James and the other apostles from the false teachers that Peter is about to rebuke in chapter 2, is that they were commissioned by Christ himself. And they were told, you will take the message. The Spirit will bring to your remembrance everything that needs to be said about me. And so they wrote. And they wrote, and we have the 27 books of the New Testament, beginning with the Gospels, and then the history of the work of the Spirit of God in the book of Acts. And then we have the letters written by the apostles to address the problems that were going on in the churches. And then finally we end with becoming king who will win in the book of Revelation. And that forms for us the way in which we need to understand the Old Testament. What is amazing about all of this, is the Old Testament was given to point to one person. Jesus Christ. And so the apostles would call them and and, and call them to focus on Christ in the Old Testament. But secondly, that apostolic illumination that is mentioned there, it is also focused and elsewhere in scripture on individual illumination. Now, there are no apostles today. I am not an apostle. I remember when we lived in South Carolina, there was this church that had the apostle Ron Carpenter Jr. And I used to always think, I wonder if that helps him that he has apostle in front of his name when, he, when people gone to his church. I'm not an apostle. They're not there today. I haven't seen Jesus physically on this earth. That was the. Primary um, determining factor of whether or not someone was an apostle. But you know what I do have today? The Spirit of God. And here's the thing you know what you have today? The Spirit of God. And so while we have the completed Word of God and the writings of the apostles that provide for us clarity on who Christ is and interpret for us all the revelation of God in the Old Testament. Now when we come to both Old and New Testament, we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit. We can rest sure in the writings written to us that they speak of Christ. And Paul particularly points this out in 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians three, fourteen through 17 he speaks of how the Jews... Have hardened minds. And again, those minds were hardened by all those years of tradition. And he says that this is what happens to this day when they read the Old Covenant. You know the term Testament? It's just an older English term for, guess what word? Covenant. For this day, when they read the Old Testament, we could say it, guess what happens? There's still a veil. Because they're not freed from the traditions. They're not freed from the twistings of their religious leaders. And they're hardened in their minds. And so that veil remains unlifted. Because there's only one way that that veil is removed. And it is through Christ. Only through Christ is it taken Away. Paul then goes on and reiterates, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Now, this is referring specifically to the Old Testament and particularly to the Jews, but the reality is the greater principle here applies to anyone who is apart from Christ. If you want to understand the Word of God, it begins. With Christ, with coming to him. And in fact, that's what Paul says is a great hope. When one turns to the Lord, what happens to that veil? It's removed. And then he gives us this wonderful quote. Now, the Lord is what? The Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, what do we have? Freedom. And then he goes on in the rest of that passage to say that we all who have the spirit have an unveiled face. And as we look to the word of God, we behold in that word the glory of the Lord. And we're changed into that same image. And it happens progressively from one degree of glory to the next. We have to depend on the Holy Spirit to understand the Word. Now, when Peter comes to verse 21, and this verse is, you know, if you've ever done a doctrinal study, you've ever gone and had a systematic theology class, this is one of the great proof texts for what we call the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. And so while Peter is calling us to recognize that we have to depend upon the Spirit to be illumined, he then explains why that is. Guess who wrote the Scripture? The Spirit. In fact, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Now this is so important. Because in a day and age in which we have both false prophets and false teachers, we again see a rebuke against depending upon mankind there are people today who will stand up and they will say i have a word from the lord and then they'll say something some nonsense that has nothing to do with the word of god listen i have a word from the lord and it's in his word that's where we go to find that word i can't conjure it up I can't make it myself. And in fact, when it was being made, in the Old Testament and in the New, it wasn't because these prophets were sort of like, oh yeah, let me make up a religion. What happened? They spoke from God. See, the reason why we're dependent upon the Spirit of God, the reason why we need Him is because it is not man's words, it's God's word. So that what was written by the prophets and the apostles was not the words of men, but the words of God himself. How does that happen? That's what we call the doctrine of inspiration. How does that all work together? Well, Peter gives us a little bit of a a taste of that. He tells us that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's all sorts of different ideas about what that carrying along means. But suffice it to say, we know for a fact this is what ends up happening. So that when Paul wrote, and when he wrote these letters to Corinth and to Thessalonica, when Peter wrote to the pilgrims that he's writing to, the way in which he wrote were his actual words, but because the Spirit bore them along, they were also God's word. So that it is correct to say, when we come to 2 Peter, that this is what Peter has written. But it is also equally correct to say, when we come to 2 Peter, this is what God has written. Remember what Peter says earlier on in 2 Peter chapter 1. It's actually the theme of this entire series in 2 Peter. Listen, we have everything that we need to be pilgrims granted to us through the knowledge of him who called us out of darkness through the knowledge of christ how do you know christ do you go out into the the woods and you know look up and say all right reveal yourself to me lord do you sit at home and Cross your legs and hope that you can somehow like levitate and then you'll have some experience with Christ? Do you look for a dream? You go to bed and and you say, Lord, reveal yourself to me. Do do you, like I mentioned a couple weeks ago when I was a teenager cleaning here on, on Saturday evenings? Do you pray, Lord, make yourself visible to me? How do you gain The knowledge of Christ that is so vital for your walk as a pilgrim. You look to the word. And when you look to the word, you do it not looking to yourself, but looking to the spirit. Many of you know the name of Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. He was a prolific preacher. They called him the Prince of Preachers. Uh, Spurgeon was a strong voice for the gospel. He would attract thousands of people to the Metropolitan Tabernacle. So many that at one point... There was a balcony that actually collapsed and people were hurt because so many people wanted to hear him. Spurgeon's life is an amazing life. I, if you've never read a biography of Spurgeon or looked into him, I highly suggest looking at Spurgeon. And another thing, he was a Baptist. <laughs> Spurgeon, who was known as one of the best preachers of his day and age, would have a... a College for ministers in London, and they would come together and he would teach them and and back in that day when the way that, that churches were arranged or whatever, the pulpit would oftentimes sit off to the side and the, the the pastor would have to ascend a number of different steps to get into that pulpit and I remember reading a book just recently where The number was given to me, and again, I forgot the number, but it was dozens of steps that Spurgeon would have to walk up as he would walk up to his pulpit. I've only got two, so thanks. (laughs) As Spurgeon would ascend those steps, he would pray a very simple prayer at each step. He would pray, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Spurgeon would say that again and again, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And he would say that dozens of times as he would stand behind his pulpit and open the Word. As I come to preach and to prepare the Word of God for you to... To feed you with what God has given. I'm fully dependent on the word of God. Or upon the spirit of God. And as you interact with God's word. Reject dependence upon yourself. Or man's ideas. Depend upon the spirit. I wonder how you go about your daily time in God's word. I think so often we get into routines about how we come to God's word and oftentimes we read it and then we pray. Let me suggest that you begin with a prayer. Lord, send your spirit to reveal your word to me today. Do that every day. Listen, this world is rough. It's a rough world out there. This world hates us. We're pilgrims. We don't belong here. But when you come to the word of God and you see the glory of Christ revealed by the Spirit, you get to glimpse the morning star rising. And he rises in your heart. To encourage you. If you do and approach God's word. Apart from the spirit. You'll never experience that. May we grow. In our dependency. Upon the spirit of God. Let's pray. Father. We thank you for your word. And the truth we find in it. We thank you that you. Who are ascended in heaven. You are high and lifted up. As you are at this moment seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. As John describes you as the lamb standing that, is, that, was, that was slain. Father, as you are there, as you are there and your son is there at your right hand. Father, we yearn for your son to come back. We know that he will not delay one second longer than is necessary to return for his people, that he is waiting for you, O Father, to give the word. And so our desire, Father, is come, Lord Jesus. But Lord, we also look To the glorious hope of what your son said to his disciples. That he will not leave us as orphans. That he comes to us. And then he promises to send the comforter. The Holy Spirit. Lord, we need your spirit desperately. Father, may we, by your grace, turn aside from man's approaches to Scripture and may we depend all the more upon the Spirit who you have given fully to all those who are in Christ. Thank you that when we turn to the Lord, the veil is lifted And that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We pray all this in Christ's name, pleading.